Despite the devastating events of the last 12 months and the resulting decline in mental health in a number of destinations, there's been no change at the top spot when it comes to ranking the happiest country in the world. The annual World Happiness Report, issued by the UN's Sustainable Development Solutions Network, makes headlines every year with its rankings of the happiest countries in the world. And that was producer Kaylee reading the beginning of a CNN story about the 2021 report. The findings are based on data about six areas of life. Levels of GDP, the gross domestic product, basically how wealthy a country is, uh, life expectancy, generosity, social support, freedom and corruption. And the winner is... For the fourth year running, Finland has come out on top in the annual list powered by data from the Gallup World Poll, with Iceland, Denmark, Switzerland and the Netherlands following in second, third, fourth and fifth positions respectively. I've got to admit, I find that hard to believe. I've been to Finland and happy isn't quite the word that comes to mind. Certainly calm, polite, generous, open-hearted, but happy? In 2019, Vice magazine sent a journo to Finland to find out if the Finns really were happier than the rest of us. It is, after all, really, really cold there. In winter, Finns in the south only get about six hours of sun a day, and in the north, they get nothing. How can they be happy? We visited the reigning champions of joy to see what makes them so happy. Are you happy? Uh, Did you see this story? Yes, I've seen it many times, and uh, I always wonder why, actually. I'm like literally about to kill myself standing in the square for like mm -hmm. 20 minutes. This is kind of a hard country, especially in autumn and winter, you know? yeah. so I mean, it, it takes a lot of yeah. something, yeah. inner spirit, to, to be able to live here. Yeah. This is not working out, by the way. The masses might seem sullen, but Finnish happiness researcher Frank Martella thinks the country's top ranking makes a certain amount of sense. There are measures like life satisfaction, and we know from research like, that the factors like, you know, like how wealthy the country is and also like how broad the social network system is and how much people trust in the institution, what is the situation with the democracy, these factors are kind of like things that like tend to predict like high life satisfaction. Countries that scored high on income, life expectancy, and social support, all which contribute to one's sense of well-being, have topped the list for several years running. In other words, if you live in a Nordic welfare state, the UN suspects you're probably happy. One way of like defining measuring happiness is about life satisfaction. How satisfied are you with your life on the whole? And in that kind of measures, Finland seems to be like in the top. But then when you measure happiness with like positive emotions, like joy joyfulness and how much do you smile every day and so forth. Where is Finland on that scale? not close to the top at all. So after spending some time in Finland, I've determined that the UN is partially right. This country is not particularly happy. Everyone looks pretty grim. But while they're probably not the happiest people on the planet, I think they're the most content people on the planet. That's what Finland is. It's not happy. This is the wrong word. It's a bad translation. Right? Right. That makes more sense. 
We are living in an age where the pursuit of happiness is an obsession. Globalization has meant that more people are experiencing more political freedom and a reasonable chance of financial resources. We are, as a global community, more wealthy, and therefore many of us have moved beyond a daily struggle to meet our most basic needs. Uh, reflecting on the impact of the Industrial Revolution, 20th century British philosopher and historian Bertrand Russell said, for the first time in history, it is now possible to create a world where everybody shall have a reasonable chance of happiness. We are now more able than ever to consider whether we are living a happy life. It's part of the self-consciousness of our culture. The self-help aisle of your local bookstore is testament to that. But one of our guests today, the great Miroslav Volf, reminds us that there is a difference between life going well, which triggers those feelings of happiness, and living life well. Quoting the ancient philosopher Seneca, Volf put it rather well, I think. Pleasure, he said, can be thin. It can be laid on as a coating, a surface feeling that makes you forget what's going on underneath. So what is true happiness, if that's even the right word? And how do we get it? I'm John Dixon, and this is Undeceptions. This season of Undeceptions is sponsored by Zondervan Academic. Get discounts on master lectures, video courses, and exclusive samples of their books at zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write Undeceptions. Each episode here at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, philosophy, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. This episode of Undeceptions is proudly brought to you by Zondervan Academic's new book, Know the Theologians, written by podcast alumni Jennifer Powell McNutt and David McNutt. The McNutts invite us to meet the theological giants of the centuries, whose ideas have shaped not just Christianity, but also our world, whether you're a believer or a doubter. They cover a dozen or more pivotal figures spanning Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholics, and the Protestant traditions. This book is an excellent, readable introduction to the biggest names in Christian thinking. Whether you're embarking on a personal quest for knowledge or seeking a material for a kind of book club, I honestly reckon Know the Theologians has you covered. Each chapter is packed with insights, reflection questions, and recommended readings. You can order your copy of Know the Theologians today on Amazon, of course, or visit zondervan.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions, and you can learn more. Hello, Miroslav. How are you? Well, hello. I'm doing really well. So good to see you. My goodness, you don't change. Ah, well, not you. <laughs> hey, but you, here's, a, here's a lovely piece of serendipity. You know, it was seven years ago today wow. that you and I were out on this boat at Sydney Harbour. 
Oh my goodness, what memories. I love that. I, Can you see that photo? I remember that. I remember it so well. Oh, that was great. I'm chatting to the renowned Miroslav Volf. He's the Henry B. Wright Professor of Theology at Yale Divinity School, one of the 12 graduate and professional schools of the prestigious Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Miroslav is also the founder and director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. You are considered uh, one of the great theologians of our day, and your teacher, indeed, Jürgen Moltmann, was one of the great theologians of the 20th century. But to some of my listeners, Miroslav, that's not a compliment, <laughs> because theology, it's not even a discipline. Uh, you know, if we, if we don't even know if God exists, what, how could the study of God be a valid academic discipline? Do you have a defense of theology for us? Well, it's not just some of your listeners. Uh, if I talk to some of my colleagues uh, here at Yale, I think they would roughly have the same opinion as your listeners. Um, Yale Divinity School is up on a, on a hill, and it's sometimes called God Hill. And folks don't quite know what we up on the God Hill uh, do and why we are there. Um, indeed, I remember talking to the uh, then president of Harvard, he was interviewing me for some position, and then he told me, do you know, Miroslav, that if Harvard were to be founded today, it would not have a divinity? Which seems to me patently obvious, because some of the great universities of today may have religious studies departments. Uh, they will study of religion in various domains of what research is done at universities, but they wouldn't have a divinity school. So why the question of God? Um, well, I mean, uh, for someone like me, and as well as for um, many uh, people today, the existence of God um, seemed to be plausible alternative in, in the context of worldviews. Mm -hmm. And it seemed that also has had historically, uh, when I think about Jewish monotheism, profound uh, cultural uh, impact so that we can't even think about our modern world today um, without uh, reference to the belief in God. So I'm interested in God both because I believe that God exists, and if God exists, God then concerns me in an ultimate way. But I'm also interested in the kind of cultural history of what we did with the beliefs a belief in God. And that's why I'm a theologian. Uh, in, in some ways, it's centered on reflection on God, but with the view of what it means for our flourishing. Flourishing. It's a word some people hate. They're too airy-fairy, self-absorbed, and humanistic even. But Miroslav actually likes the word. It comes from the Latin for flower. And of course, in our context, since at least the 16th century, it means to live life to the fullest expression of our humanity. In his book titled Flourishing, Miroslav describes it as, quote, the life that is lived well, the life that goes well, and the life that feels good. All three together, inextricably intertwined. It's the good life and the life worth living. Professor Wolf uses a passage in the Bible's book of Psalms to describe this more vividly. It's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit 
in its season, and its leaves do not wither. Like the tree that flowers, humans flourish when we're living into our human and personal fullness. It's the opposite of languishing, a word and feeling many of us have become familiar with in our second year of COVID. Miroslav started a course at Yale called Life Worth Living, attempting to fill a gap that has opened up in our academic institutions. We no longer discuss what it means to live the good life. And uh, one of the reasons for that, main reason for that course, is that, you know, this question used to be the most important question that universities were seeking to answer. This was why the universities, great universities uh, of the past have been founded. But gradually, especially um, in the 20th century, the, the, uh, already in the 19th in many ways, uh, the, the gradual secularization occurred, but not just secularization, but marginalization of the question of the good life from the concern of the university. And the reason is relatively simple, and that is that we couldn't agree on what the good life is, or even that that's a reasonable question to pursue. Uh, Therefore, we privatized the question of the good life and ended up simply trying to live a good life uh, as each of us best sees fit Perhaps part of the reason any discussion of the good life is out of favor in the academy is that religion is out of favor. And it is religions, or at least metaphysics, that have offered some of the most powerful conceptions of the good life throughout history. Religions in general, and Christianity in particular, um, are viewed by many as hindrances to the good life, to human flourishing. Are you fighting an uphill battle in this task of communicating these ideas? I think the way I present the course to them is I say, these traditions have spent centuries of intense reflection about that very question. If for no other reason, it is important for you to attend to the wisdom of the centuries about what kind of life it's truly a life that we ought to pursue. And so we can you can pursue it as as just this informative uh, issue. But what we say, but we what, what we say to our students is each of these traditions makes claim to be true. We recognize that all of them cannot be true, but each of them claims to be true. Now, what we want you to do is for the moment that you are in class with us and read. Treat them as if they were true, <laughs> as if that claims make some sense and wrestle with it, right? And ask yourself, give them the benefit of the doubt, and ask yourself how life would look if you were to inhabit it and if you were to start living it so that, in a sense, you imaginatively try out how the life feels. And I, and I think that's the way to approach uh, questions of the go- good life. Reasons uh, are not sufficient. Practices uh, are important. That's why saints are important in many traditions and exemplars, even in philosophical tradition. Think of Socrates and his importance in philosophical tradition. Reasons aren't sufficient. 
practices are also important. A conversation about the good life can't end in just the philosophy, as important and lovely as the philosophy is. It really is a practical question. How are we to live? It's an active question. So let's talk specifically about Christianity. What is flourishing uh, within the Christian vision of the good life? I think it's probably best summarized in the statement that Apostle Paul uh, makes about what is or what isn't the kingdom of God. He said, kingdom of God is not food and drink. I think he meant to say it's not merely food or drink. It's not primarily food uh, and drink. That is to say, uh, a, a kind of satisfaction of immediate needs cannot be made to be your guide and guiding principle of the entire life. What kingdom of God is, is righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy. And righteousness is right acting. It addresses our agency. Peace is right sets of circumstances in which we are to live and in which we can flourish. And joy is a kind of pinnacle of the emotional attunement uh, with the world. And I think that good life on any account will have these three components, right living, right set of circumstances in which we as finite and fragile beings can thrive, and a, a kind of emotionally positive tonality to it. And then discussion becomes what kind of, what's, the relationship between those and what's the content of each of these uh, these aspects. Those are the three formal components that make up the good life. Your circumstances make you feel that life is going well. You have agency to make decisions that you think are the right ones. And life feels right. That's the emotional element. And Miroslav argues that all three of these components work together. They intertwine and inform one another to make the good life. And as Miroslav points out, the Christian tradition uses words like peace, righteousness, and joy to give expression to these three components. Now, it might sound strange to some that Christianity concerns itself with living a good life here on earth. There is, after all, a lot of talk in the Bible about denying yourself and taking up your cross, sacrificing, following the way of Jesus. This might seem to work against flourishing. But wasn't Jesus, and Paul for that matter, uh, rather ascetic in, in their approach, uh, life-denying, uh, which seems the opposite of flourishing? Um. Now I might I might counter the question as what do you have against asceticism? <laughs> asceticism comes from the Greek askeo, meaning to train. It's the practice of discipline, basically, in pursuit of a higher life. So denying sensual pleasures like food, sex, and entertainment in order to achieve some greater good. The word came to be associated in the West anyway with nuns and monks who renounced everything for Jesus. But um I mean, famous critique by uh, by Nietzsche was of uh, entirety of the religious tradition, monotheist traditions, uh, uh, all the traditions which operate with these two worlds account of reality, transcendent and imminent, are basically life uh, life denying, and I, I think the response uh, to that would be, um, I mean, uh, just look at the 
a foundational event in the history of monotheism, Jewish monotheism. It's the liberation of the children of Israel from the slavery uh, in Egypt. I mean, it's very hard to think of the most more life-giving uh, event than that. And I think that event has shaped the trajectory of the entirety uh, of the Western tradition, shaped also Christianity. And The exodus from Egypt is perhaps the biggest event in Old Testament history. And if you're interested in that, we did a whole episode on it last season. The Israelites were a slave nation within the tyrannical Egypt sometime between the 15th and 13th century BC. And they experienced the opposite of flourishing. God intervenes, says the Old Testament book of Exodus, and brought down judgment on the Egyptians. He freed Israel and led them to their own promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Bible puts it. And so the people of God entered into what the Hebrew Bible calls shalom, a word often translated simply as peace. And today in modern Hebrew, it's basically just how you say good day. But the word really means peace, welfare, health, and prosperity rolled into one. We might even say flourishing. So back to Miroslav. And in, in fact, Christian faith is in no way life-denying, but it's life-enhancing, and it leads one into what one might describe the fullness of life. John, Gospel of John, uses the word life abundant. Now, Here's the full verse from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, said Jesus. I came that they may have life and have it, perisos, abundantly, excessively, to the full. I love my listeners to hear you unpack the idea of experiencing life and the world as a gift, uh, what do you mean by that, and what difference would it make? Yeah, T to me, that's a really fundamental, uh, uh, fundamental question. Uh, I think one of the great problems of our time is what um, I think leaning on Karl Marx, uh, George Lukács, uh, Hungarian Marxist philosophers, philosopher has called reification, where relationships that we have, indeed, you can extend it and make an argument as uh, some sociologists have, all relationships in which we find ourselves have increasingly become reified. We treat everything that surrounds us as a mere thing to be made serviceable to our, to our needs. Um, and I think one of the, one of the great... Um, ways to counter this is to think of everything that we encounter as a gift. And we think about it if we think of it as God's creation. And once you start thinking of creation as a gift or particular things in creation as gifts, you suddenly realize how much alive they are and how much resonance there is between you and things. Um, I always I give example, you know, of simple gifts that people who you love give to you. Uh, my example is always my father's ink pen, uh, and it's not a particularly great pen. One of those pelican, relatively inexpensive pelican, uh, gold nibbed ink pens, right? And they're much better 
ink pens to be to be had, and I can buy them for for myself. And yet, I love that pen. When I see that pen, when I take that pen, this is my dad, right? There's a kind of he hovers over that pen, and I think this is how creation can be for those of us who believe uh, believe in God. When you add to that that people are gifts to us as well, uh, then suddenly you realize what people give you and how they give themselves to you are gifts that are laden with deeper deeper meaning. And I think in a kind of deeper joy that we um, that, that is not reducible, and that's really important for me, that's not reducible to the Kind of thingness of them, so that, for instance, like like this pen, uh, it has a quality beyond uh, artistic uh, or, or material value that 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 it has, and it's that quality that makes it possible for us to live in a world as home, to be a grateful for that world, to have these resonant relationships uh, with it, uh, and delight in it in a very deep way. Andrew Wilson, back in episode 47, Everyday Sacred, had some really cool things to say about the theological meaning of things like pens and pencils. You might like to check that out. Uh, an atheist might respond, Miroslav, by saying, um, but I uh, experience uh, joy and wonder just in the thing. In a way, you are denying the thing by saying it has to have this transcendent, uh, you know, sort of miraculous valuation of the thing. I just love the thing, and all there are are things. Well, it, it, you know, it may be that uh, in certain, from certain perspective, or all there are are things. And uh, certainly I can uh, think that there are enjoyments to be had uh, in things, uh, quad things. My argument would be, um, I mean, twofold. One, well, let's argue about uh, the existence of God uh, and, and presupposition of the, for the whole thing. But let's, on the other hand, bracket that for the moment and then simply ask a uh, kind of phenomenological experience of, of the world. And when, once you ask that question, I think that it becomes clear that if you have this dimension of uh, kind of the presence of a beloved other in things that you encounter, the things acquire deeper deeper value uh, for you because uh, you you are bound to them through uh, through things through people and you are bound to people through things which are a bridge between the two 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 of you. Um, to me, that is um, th that is wonderful uh, thing. Um, uh, the other example that I give, you know, if I eat. Uh, uh, my mother's chocolate cake that uh, made by the recipe that I make it, and I eat it on the table uh, that, 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 that uh, where she where she sat, uh, and follow the recipe uh, and eat it with my with, with my friends uh, and family who have known her. I enjoy that cake, even though it might have a even though it not just might, even though it is inferior in quality to anything that a great chef might might produce uh, and make, there's no contest in that. So, so the whole idea is that the thing can have an added value. So uh, we can enjoy things, obviously, uh, but we can enjoy them more. Transcendence doesn't make the thing less. You you, you would argue it, it makes it more. Um, 
can we flourish alone? You know, I mean, some people are just pursuing self-help, uh, fitness, good food, maybe a small circle of friends. Uh, but but basically, you know, I can have individual flourishing. Uh, yes, people pe people try try that, and to a certain extent, I suspect uh, people can and people people do flourish. Now, for for me, the important in this uh, this question is raised. Important is the question of of agency, and also responsibility. And I want to say that um, there's something deficient about my simply slipping into the mode of flourishing while closing my eyes that so many around me are actually deeply languishing. Now, that's a value judgment. That's a value judgment which says I ought to be concerned for other, for other people. Now, if you share that a value judgment, then it would seem that you would have to conclude I will not fully flourish until all people are flourishing, um, which means that for the most part, we all live in a partly false life. And the question is, what does it mean to live rightly in the false life? And some people might say, well, that's just to care, take care of myself, my own uh, phys physique, my, my own health through exercise, the food that is, that, is, uh, that is healthy. That's what it means to live true life within the false uh, life. Or you can say living true life in the false life means both attending to one's own needs, but also extending oneself uh, in certain way, in ascetic ways toward those whose needs need to be met. So a big paradigm for a truly flourishing life is uh, a man uh, by the name of Francis who has a, a prefix saint attached uh, to, to him who was married to Lady Poverty. But he exuded this incredible joy, which was all in helping other people uh, come to uh, to experience flourishing, also under conditions of uh, deprivation. Francis of Assisi lived in the 13th century. He belonged to a wealthy Italian family and lived a rather rebellious youth of partying and drinking. He then became a soldier and confronted death on the battlefield. It really affected him. He experienced some kind of post-traumatic stress. It caused him to wonder what life was really all about. And according to his own account, it was facing poor lepers that caused him to reconsider his whole value system. Um, once upon a time, he used to mock the local lepers. He'd be with friends and he'd pinch his nose whenever they passed by and he'd laugh out loud at them. One day though, after a period of reflection, he says instead of feeling disgust at this group of lepers that approached him, he was overwhelmed with a feeling of love for them. He couldn't understand why, and he eventually interpreted it as a miracle designed to show him God's love for the unlovely, even for Francis. And as a result, he devoted himself from that moment on to the practical spiritual life of preaching and caring for the unlovable. 
His father freaked out and tried to force him back into the family business, but Francis wouldn't have it. He'd experienced a divine human love, and it filled his heart with joy. The trivial happiness of mere wealth or pleasure or status actually became disgusting to him and life-sapping the way he used to think of leprosy. The famous Franciscan vow of poverty that he later developed for the brothers and sisters in his religious order was actually designed to embody his original conversion experience, that mercy and love, not wealth and pleasure, are the real stuff of life. The near-contemporary sources we have for Francis make clear that he was not a dour, severe ascetic in that cliched sense. He exuded a joy that was infectious. Go figure. This is precisely what I wanted to ask you next. Does all this talk about flourishing uh, ignore the sadness and evil of the world? Uh, in other words, is this a journey you've been on You know, to articulate flourishing? Is it really just a middle-class luxury? It can be that. And I think for many people, it ends up being that. Um, and, and I think any account of flourishing that forgets that we live in a false life is a false account of flourishing, which is to say my flourishing consists not simply in myself thriving, but in my, this is the sagential side of flourishing, in my having the kind of agency that kind of works toward transformation of this world. And then my my life gets certain kind of weight rather than kind of superficial uh, pleasures where one uh, jumps from one to the, to the next and they never satisfied because they don't mean uh, very much. Um, so that even under conditions of suffering, uh, other people's suffering and often our own suffering, it's possible to taste something of the flourishing life in hope for the future consummation. Michel Onfray, the, the famous French philosopher, um, a fan of uh, Nietzsche, uh, wrote these words, and I want you to respond as a theologian of hope. Onfray wrote, religion's glorification of a fictional beyond prevents full enjoyment of the real here below. They establish death on earth for the sake of eternity in heaven and seek to promote self-hatred to the detriment of the body. I'm sure it sounds better even in French, but uh, it, uh, it, it's powerful. Uh, yes, and uh, as, you, as you say, you can, you can recognize uh, partly Marxian, partly Nietzschean kinds of uh, themes depending where he, wants to, uh, where he wants to go with this. I mean, it's... Uh, one can simply say that, uh, well, let's look at the lives that people people actually uh, live and the kinds of enjoyment that they might uh, they might have and kinds of significance that their lives uh, might have, and see whether that thesis actually actually uh, follows. And certainly, it it wouldn't be the case if you look at some of the uh, great founders of religious traditions, and certainly. It wouldn't look so if you uh, were to look at Jesus. Now, I say this, and I realize that uh, from 
the, the, the talk about what flourishing is, is always perspectival talk. Uh, if you are a Nietzschean, that means that you have a particular table of values and you have a kind of supreme value that determines what else is valuable to you. Uh, and for Nietzsche, that would be something like power, certain kind of uh, power. Uh, now, from that vantage point, uh, obviously, a uh, life of Christ is uh, is a failed uh, life, and that's must be not just admitted, but that must be embraced and respected. That's how things look for you, crucified or Dionysus. You you choose Dionysus. Ha! Miroslav expects you all to know that Dionysus is the ancient Greek god, equivalent to the Roman god Bacchus, who's basically the champion of abundance, wine, partying, and ecstasy. He's the polar opposite of the ascetic. That's how things look for you, crucified or Dionysus. You, you choose Dionysus. I, I will have to choose the crucified. Or, you know, Apostle Paul speaks about people whose God is belly. Right? So, so certain forms of pleasures. And if that's your ultimate value, obviously uh, the way Francis lived would seem to you um, utterly implausible. It would be a life-denying kind of life. And if you talk to Francis, Francis would say, uh, with stigmata and everything else, this is the best of lives that I could possibly live. Uh, and his uh, infectious uh, joy about just that kind of life is a testimony to its power. So some of this is a, is a matter of perspective, and there would have to put them side by side, compare, uh, and also live with the idea that not all people will share the same ultimate uh, account of what uh, what's truly valuable. Tables of values differ. With so much difference in these values, is it possible to develop an idea of human flourishing that crosses religious and cultural divides? Our next guest is trying to do just that. After the break. Imagine a world where you have to worry each day about where you're going to get clean water, where access to clean water is literally a lifeline. In the East African nation of Burundi, that is the sad reality. 86% of the population lives in extreme poverty, and more than half the children under five suffer from frequent diarrheal diseases due to lack of clean water. Anglican Aid is working on the ground with local organisations to change this. They're improving natural springs to give local families clean drinking water, which, can you believe this, cuts their medical bills by 30%. Now, for Aussies, the end of the financial year is approaching. Yes, American friends, the Aussie financial year is almost as weird as yours. For Aussies, this is a great time to make a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid. For the rest of the world, when isn't a good time to help families in Burundi access clean water? Will you please head to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions and make a donation before the 30th of June if you're an Aussie or, you know, if you're anywhere in the world, because every donation 
makes a huge difference. That's anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thanks so much. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Undeceptions podcast. And they've just launched Morling to Go, a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Morling to Go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to morling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Morling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G dot E-D-U dot A-U forward slash Undeceptions. So Tyler, tell me about the uh, Harvard Human Flourishing Program. Some might sound uh, feel it sounds a bit new agey. Well, the, the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard was uh, begun four years ago. And the idea was to bring together scholars of different disciplines to try to study as rigorously as possible human well-being. That's Tyler Vanderweeler, and you might be familiar with his cameos across various other episodes last season. I find him so impressive that we showcased his research right across different episodes. Tyler is Professor of Epidemiology at Harvard University's School of Public Health, and he's the director of the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University. He holds degrees from the University of Oxford, University of Pennsylvania, and Harvard University in mathematics, philosophy, theology, finance, and biostatistics. He's a complete nerd. His empirical research spans psychiatric and social epidemiology, the science of happiness and flourishing, and the study of religion and health. He's published over 300 papers in peer-reviewed journals and is the author of three major books, his latest being Measuring Wellbeing with Oxford University Press, and it came out just this year. All that's to say, he's made it his life's work to study what it takes to flourish and then how to replicate that on a societal scale. We study very well um, physical health, say, or, or what are the determinants of, of income and wealth, um, but other less tangible aspects of well-being like meaning and purpose or like character and virtue and trying to be a good person or social relationships, these things I think are not as well and as rigorously studied. Um, so we try to both use the most rigorous empirical methodology possible, um, but unite that with the rich traditions on these topics um, from philosophy, from, from theology, from the humanities, um, to, to try to understand uh, how to bring about human well-being or human flourishing. So that's the motivation, that was the goal um, of the formation of this program. But aren't these topics themselves uh, somewhat subjective? I mean, it's one thing to work out heart health. It's another thing to work out uh, meaning health. Yeah, there, there is a strong um, subjective component, say, to um, 
know, having a sense of, of meaning and purpose in life. And, and so much of the data um, that we make use of does rely on, on self-report. Um, do you yourself feel um, that you, you have a sense of direction and purpose in life? Um, or that your life is meaningful, or that your activities are meaningful, and there are different nuances to, I uh, know these these different sorts of questions, um, and then and then we do try to study what gives rise to that sense of meaning, because although it's subjective, it's something people very deeply care about, um, and you know believe it or not, we try to do the the same things with uh, questions of of, of character. Um, and there can be concerns about self-report, how well do people really know and understand who they are. And so we do also attempt to study more objective features in addition to the um, subjective. So while we'll ask people questions about character, we'll also ask them how often they, they volunteer, say, or um, do they contribute to um, uh, various charitable organizations. Um, and I don't think either of these approaches, the objective or the subjective, is on its own entirely adequate. But by bringing the two together, I think we really can gain considerable insight into um, what the determinants of, of these aspects of flourishing are and, and also the consequences for, for long term for the individuals themselves and, and for society. So Tyler is trying to figure out the specific things that make humans flourish and then how you translate that into policy that leaders can use to make societies better. And his approach is very different from that of Miroslav Volf. Vanuila is looking at the empirical evidence for flourishing more than the philosophy and metaphysics, but the data points in the same direction. The understanding of flourishing that we've been using our working definition, so to speak, um, is that flourishing is living in a state in which all aspects of a person's life are good. Um, so it's a very broad, all-encompassing uh, definition. And um, with, with something so broad, we, we might wonder, can we really attain consensus on, on what this is and what this means? And how, how would we ever go about um, measuring such a thing? Um, that the sort of very notion of what good is is going to vary across um, philosophical and, and religious and cultural traditions. And so what we've tried to do is to say, well, what is common to these different um, understandings of, of well-being or, or of flourishing? What does seem to be um, universal? And the argument's not that um, we can completely characterize what flourishing is, but we can try to identify um, some of the main domains of, of life which are included within flourishing. Um, and, and so in you know, some of the work um, that, that we've published, I've proposed five domains of well-being or, or flourishing um, that I, I think are essentially universally uh, desired or nearly universally desired. Um, and the argument's not that these five uh, constitute the whole of flourishing, but that whatever else flourishing might include, it would inclu include these five as well. Um, and those five domains are um, happiness and life satisfaction, physical and mental health, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, and close social relationships. 
And again, the argument's not that these five exhaust what we mean by flourishing, but that any reasonable conception of flourishing, whatever else it might include, would, would include these five as well. I think each of these domains is, again, nearly universally desired, and each also constitutes its own end. It's sought for its own sake. It's not simply a means uh, to attain something else. And I think those two criteria, um, being nearly universally desired and being an end in itself, can help shape some consensus around what to measure and what to study, even in a pluralistic society like ours. I feel I'm going to have to do a little sideways edit in this uh, in this show on Aristotle and his notion of happiness as an end in itself. So that's something for me to do later. Aristotle was the great Greek philosopher, probably the smartest man BC. He defined happiness as the thing humans seek as an end in itself, rather than an instrument to that end. He said wealth isn't happiness, because people pursue wealth as an instrument to achieve something beyond wealth. Uh, entertainment isn't happiness, because people seek entertainment in order to experience something else. According to Aristotle, that something else is what we call happiness. His word was eudaimonia, or blessedness. It's the end in itself. You don't pursue happiness in order to get something else, it's the thing. It's the goal of life. And by the way, he reckoned it had to do with experiencing contentment, a life of virtue, a knowledge of the meaning of reality. And he even argued on logical, not religious grounds, that true eudaimonia, blessedness, involved knowing God as the source of all life, rationality, and meaning. Now, I'm not doing a five-minute Jesus in this episode because it's already too long, but if I did, I'd point out that Aristotle's idea of flourishing, eudaimonia, is very similar to that found earlier than Aristotle in the Old Testament, particularly the book of Proverbs, where blessedness is participating in the mind of the Creator, living according to His genius or wisdom. And if I had a little more time, which I don't, I have my director and producer looking at me right now, I'd talk about how Jesus picks up this idea in the Sermon on the Mount, which begins with eight calls to the blessed life. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, and so on. And his point isn't that if you're meek, you'll get a reward. If you work for peace, God will like you. No, Jesus' point is that these things are what an authentic life is really all about. When you live in these virtues, you are participating in the mind of the maker, and that's the goal of human life. You are living according to the maker's wisdom imprinted on the world, and this wisdom is destined one day in God's kingdom to be the only game in town. Anyway, that's if we had time for a five-minute Jesus. Back to Tyler. So we've also tried to understand how can we promote flourishing across these these different domains. Um, My own discipline is uh, public health. And when we think about public impact, when we public health impact, when we think about what shapes health at the population level, and we often use two criteria, one of which is now, for a particular exposure or phenomena, how common is it? And then second, how large are its effects on the health outcomes that we care about? If something's very common and has large effects, it's going to powerfully shape 
uh, population health. And so if we look at you know, what shapes physical health through this lens, uh, we end up with things like um, exercise and, and good diet and sleeping well and, and not smoking. And, and these, these are important for, for shaping physical health. But if we broaden our perspective and look at all of these domains of flourishing and ask what affects all of them, uh, the list looks rather different. And um, so if we, if we ask what is both common and, and has strong effects on all of these domains of flourishing, um, the, the list we've come up with uh, thus far are, are the following four. First, um, family and marriage. Uh, second, education. Third, uh, work and employment. And, and lastly, religious community. Each of these things worldwide is uh, relatively common, and there's empirical evidence from rigorous studies that each of these uh, has important effects across those five uh, domains of flourishing. So that if governments were to focus on promoting these different pathways, uh, family, education, work, religious community, um, that societal well-being would, would increase. It's not that every one of them is needed for every person to, to, to flourish. Um, and there may be other pathways that are important for some individuals, but, but not others. Maybe participation in the arts is, is very important for one individual, but doesn't quite shape flourishing uh, at the societal perspective as, as powerfully. Um, so there are other pathways, but in terms of what's common and has strong effects, uh, those are the four we've, we've um, been able to identify and that we've focused a lot of our work why religious community? Why, why is that one of the pathways? So over the last 30 years, there's been a you know, pretty substantial body of evidence indicating um, that participation in religious community, essentially weekly uh, religious service attendance, um, is associated with, with better physical health, greater longevity. One study um, suggested that weekly participation was associated over the life course with about seven extra years of life, um, dramatically lower rates of, um, of suicide, five, five-fold lower, um, substantial effects on uh, depression, about a 30% reduction in incident depression, um, closer relationships, both within religious communities, but also outside of uh, religious communities, greater sense of happiness of, of, of life satisfaction of, of, of meaning and, and purpose, um, of, of civic engagement and, and, and volunteering. Um, so, so once again, effects over um, these, these different domains. Um, and so one might wonder, you know, why is this so? Why are these uh, effects there? And one of the interesting um, results that have come out of these studies is it really does seem to be the communal forms of religious participation that, that matter most. Um, you know, individual spirituality or, or prayer or private practices can, of course, be important in one's own understanding and spiritual life and, and, and development. But in terms of these other flourishing domains, it really does seem that the communal form uh, that is um, most important. Just popping in here to tell you that Tyler spoke quite a lot about how attending religious services like church impacts your mental health back in episode 38 uh, last season. And he spoke about his research on forgiveness and guilt 
in episode 39. It is so interesting. Please go back and have a listen to those if you haven't already. That's episode 38 and 39. And if you go way back to episode five in season one, we spoke to an Australian politician and author, Andrew Lee, about the benefits of religious community, not just on individuals, but on society in general. He's particularly interesting because he's openly an atheist, but thinks Christianity and church life is really the backbone of social capital. And it's not just social support. Social support's important, but it it sort of maybe only explains a quarter of the effect on, on physical health and, and longevity. Um, so while I do think social support is critical, I think there are other aspects of um, participation in religious community that, that really do matter. I think having a shared set of, 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 of values, um, I think in addition to having the weekly um, meeting, having that, having that common um, purpose um, having a shared experience of, of, of the divine, of the, of the transcendent. Um, you know, I think all of these things um, do contribute uh, together, you know, along with a shared set of lifestyles and, and, and practices and, and so on. Um, and so I think it's, it's really the coming together of the social with the religious that empowers these communities to have um, such strong effects on, on well-being. One does find effects of other forms of um, you know, social participation um, affecting health and well-being also, uh, but the effect sizes are notably smaller than what one finds with, uh, uh, with, with religious uh, community. Um, moreover, in the, in the West, at least, um, uh, other forms of community life have you know, dramatically declined. Uh, uh, religious community has declined, has been declining as well, but not quite as severely as, um, as, as most other forms of, of communal life. So, so once again, going back to those criteria of being common and having strong effects uh, worldwide, at, at least uh, religious community really would, would qualify. We've, we have good evidence for this now. Being part of a religious community can have a profound effect on your ability to flourish. That's not just a theologian talking, that's an epidemiologist. And the hard data have been published in peer-reviewed journals. If being religious can impact your health as much as Tyler is telling us, then perhaps it's time to take a second look at the Christian view of flourishing. What would be missing from a conception of flourishing? if God did not live the life in Christ, give the life on the cross and rise again? What would be lost from the account of flourishing if those things were just not real? Yeah, those things are just a few that are at the very heart of the Christian faith. Uh, good question. <laughs> um, I think that what would be lost that we would not have a conception of God as the God who is love, which is to say unconditional love, who in everything God does, God uh, loves, which is a God whom we don't need to manipulate in any way to affirm the creation that he has uh, created, but who does so uh, in, in a powerful way just for the sheer existence of that creation. Now, to me, that's an absolutely stunning idea that somebody is loved just for being 
who they are, just for being human. Just think of what we do in order to kind of make ourselves lovable to ourselves and to others. How much energy, how much time, how much anxiety, how many depressions have been triggered uh, by those efforts that are often futile because we live in competitive kinds of environments uh, with others. You always end up losing against uh, somebody. That seems to me absolutely extraordinary. That would be lost, I think, in many ways. Or... What would be lost in terms of hope if there was no resurrection, if I did not believe that God is the one who is the God of the living, rather than simply God of those who will eventually always be dead? Um, Especially during this pandemic uh, over the past year, it has been interesting to observe uh, kind of how kind of receding um, fate of hope and, and, and kind of oscillation between a facile optimism of uh, college students who just want to celebrate and don't think what might happen or cynical uh, optimism of politicians who manipulate uh, optimism for their own ends or a kind of despondency that we uh, that we encounter and and an unwillingness to look at the reality straight in the in the face i think that's what hope makes possible for us because it's not dependent on the kind of circumstances that are around because it's not extrapolative it lives out of divine promise Abraham and Sarah cannot have children. God promises, notwithstanding what their bodies tell them, they can hope. And now that hope gives you ability to look at the reality straight in the face, no matter what it is. It doesn't touch the character of your hope. That's, in many ways, what we need, especially also if if things don't quite turn out how, how your object of hope said that they would. Hope's character is such that it is open to read to disappointment, if you want, to, to different fulfillment, so that I can recognize in the good that comes to me what I truly did hope and was object of my hope. I think that's a miraculous kind of a, kind of a thing. These two things would be enough to make me a Christian. Miroslav, thank you so much. If you like what we're doing here at Undeceptions, can I ask you to head to undeceptions.com and hit the donate button. Pretty much every day I get a little alert here on my phone telling me that one of you has gifted something to the Undeceptions project. God bless you. We're not quite covering costs yet, but with your help, we are making strides in that direction. Anything you can do is hugely appreciated. Thanks so much. And while you're there, feel free to send us a question and I'll try and answer it later in the season. Next episode, we're examining the weird, scary, wonderful story of Christianity in Zongguo, China. See ya.
Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Happy Hadley. Editing by Richard Humley. A shout out to Eternity and Bible Society for their wonderful support of our show from the beginning. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan, for making this Undeception possible. An Undeceptions podcast.